0: This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you from New York. Today on the program, 10 weeks of major protests, highways blocked, citizens shouting shame. This is the fierce opposition to what some are calling a coup d'etat. Prime Minister Netanyahu's plans to curtail the power of Israel's judiciary. I will ask former Prime Minister Ehud Barak and former Foreign Minister Zippy Livni about what is happening on the ground and in the Knesset. Also China's new Foreign Minister said this week that there would surely be conflict and confrontation with the US if the American government continues to speed down the wrong path. I'll dig in deep on the moods in both Beijing and Washington with Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia, who is about to be sworn in as Australia's new ambassador to the United States. Also, should Silicon Valley's tech giants finally pay up for serving news content? They've already squared off with Australia over this and Canada is next up, but it all may be too little too late in the age of AI. I will explain. But first, here's my take. Mexico could be entering a golden age. It's perfectly placed to benefit from the growing tensions between the United States and China. Parts of the country are already seeing a boom as companies diversify away from China and invest in Mexico. In fact, a good chunk of that investment is being made by Chinese companies that are finding a way to continue to sell goods to the United States. The state of Nuevo Leon, where much of the country's advanced manufacturing is centered, has received almost $7 billion in investments since late 2021, and its governor expects Tesla's recently announced plan to build a gigafactory there to yield $10 billion over time. Laredo, Texas, which deals almost exclusively with Mexican trade, last October beat out Los Angeles as the United States' busiest port. But these promising economic wins are being stifled by bad politics. For the last three decades, Mexico has had a run of presidents who, while they have had their flaws, were serious about policy and tried to modernize the country, albeit with varying degrees of success. Alas, that luck has run out. Mexico's president since 2018, Andres Manuel López Obrador, known as AMLO, is a populist demagogue who recalls the strongman tradition in Latin American history. AMLO's COVID policies were a disaster. Mexico has had one of the highest COVID case fatality ratios in the world. His economic policies have been anti-growth. By one estimate, nearly 4 million Mexicans have slipped into poverty since 2019. He has failed to take on the drug cartels and he has attacked Mexican political institutions, many of which have acquired legitimacy and competence only recently. His current effort might be the most dangerous. For most of the 20th century, Mexico was a one-party state, with fraudulent elections ensuring that the ruling party always won. That changed in 2000, when President Ernesto Zedillo's electoral reforms enabled the country's first free and fair election, which the ruling party lost. Out of the same spirit of democratization came the National Election Agency, the INE, which has developed a reputation for being independent and competent. Last month, AMLO's party passed a bill to drastically weaken that agency. AMLO had initially pushed a plan that would have killed the INE altogether and replaced it with a new body, but he couldn't clear the bar to pass a constitutional amendment, so he has settled for legislation that hollows it out. Its budget will be cut by nearly a third. Many local offices will be closed. 6,000 staff members will be laid off. Its powers will be curtailed, taking some teeth out of the watchdog. He says he is doing it to improve the voting process and save tens of millions of dollars a year. Now, Amlo cannot legally run for a second term as president. He's taking these steps to ensure that the next elections result in a victory for his party, which he plans to continue to dominate. The Supreme Court is expected to hear challenges to the president's gutting of the agency in the near future. The election agency has not been perfect, but it is a pillar of Mexico's fledgling democracy. Polls show it is the most trusted institution in Mexico after the armed forces. Amlo's attacks on it have been part of his assault on several NGOs and independent government agencies, from those dealing with corruption to human rights. In her excellent article, Shannon O'Neill writes, that AMLO has raided the coffers of public funds for artists and academics, weaponized the judiciary, and routinely attacked those who criticize him. AMLO's entire term in office has been out of a Peronist textbook, claimed to speak for the poor, attack the elites, and meanwhile run a shoddy incompetent government. When a journalist reported on the lavish life the president's son lived in the United States, he released the journalists' alleged personal income information, which the Mexican Bar Association said violated the Constitution and the tax code. AMLO campaigned on a promise to fight corruption. But according to the NGO Mexicans Against Corruption and Impunity, his government awards three out of four contracts using a no-bid system that does not even ask for competing offers. Mexico's biggest problem is not an economic one, but rather a political one. The state has lost its capacity to rein in the drug cartels, which run large parts of the country. AMLO campaigned on the slogan of hugs, not bullets. But in office, he simply ceded the issue to the military, which is deeply riddled with corruption and drug money. In 2020, the United States apprehended a former defense minister on charges of being in league with the cartels. The government of Mexico, asked the U.S. to drop the charges, and Washington agreed. Former U.S. Attorney General William Barr recently described AMLO as the cartel's chief enabler. AMLO's attack on the election agency is essentially personal. He believes that he won the 2006 and 2012 elections, but was denied his due. Independent observers do not agree. In fact, much of his presidency is an act of narcissism. He holds daily press conferences that can go on for hours. He attacks the state because its agencies limit his powers. And now he appears to be weakening election oversight. They have their differences, of course, but AMLO has turned out to be the Mexican Donald Trump. Go to CNN.com slash for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. The president of Israel's Supreme Court, two former directors of the Mossad, former heads of the Shin Bet Security Service, an ex-police commissioner, 37 Air Force pilots, a Nobel Prize-winning economist. These are just some of the Israelis who have condemned that country's judicial reforms proposed by Benjamin Netanyahu's government. Those reforms would seriously weaken the independence of Israel's Supreme Court. They would give the Knesset, the Israeli legislature... The power to overrule the High Court's decisions by a simple majority, one vote. If passed in their current form, the reforms would also allow the government decisive control over the appointment of judges. The plan's proponents admit it would weaken the judiciary, saying the Supreme Court and its unelected justices have too much power and are no longer accountable. Massive protests against the proposed measures have swept the country for 10 weeks in a row. Many political leaders say the reforms will destroy Israel's democracy. Many business leaders say they will destroy the economy. Joining me now are two former senior leaders of Israel. Ehud Barak was the country's 10th prime minister and Zippy Livni served Israel as its foreign minister and its vice prime minister. Welcome to you both. Um, Zbigniew Livni, can you explain to us why is this happening? What, what, what is the fundamental cause propelling these, these reforms, so-called reforms?
1: You can add to the list that you just mentioned, uh, dozens of thousands of Israelis that are taking the streets, demonstrating against it, because these are no judicial reforms It's about changes in the nature of Israel as a democracy. Israel was born as the nation state for the Jewish people with equal rights to all its citizens. And we have different authorities. The politician in the government and the parliament can legislate, of course, but the Supreme Court can and should supervise human rights, civil rights. Uh, And since we don't have a constitution, we have some basic law, and these are the base Uh, for uh, the decisions of the Supreme Court. What is happening now is that we are having a government that is based on three different fractions. One is very religious, ultra-orthodox. For them, they would like to ignore the idea of equality, not for women, LGBT. Uh, They don't want to serve in the army. So for them, the Supreme Court that... Uh, is that uh, part of his decisions is forcing the government uh, to keep equal rights to all its citizens that doesn't suit them. You have another fraction. These are the uh, religious, national religious part. Uh, For them, they would like to have an accession, greater Israel, and to avoid uh, and to prevent the Supreme Court from uh, making judgment on the situation in the West Bank. They want to rule without any supervision. And on top of this you have a Prime Minister that his trial is going on and it's his own political interest to weaken uh, law enforcement so the reforms what is called is not just about the Supreme Court. It's like they, got, they want the election, they got the permission or the license to drive and to promote their own ideology or vision but what they are doing is that they would like to do so without any road signs Without police on the way to do whatever they want, without any limitation, and this is something that will not happen, cannot happen, and this is why uh, we are completely against it.
0: Ehud Barak, you have been very, very strong on this issue. You say that if this if these laws get passed, um, you believe that Israel should engage in a in massive civil unrest, nonviolent protest on the scale of, you know, the kind of American civil rights movement. Explain what, what, what do you think, what, what are the stakes here? You know,
2: it's uh, basically as TP described it, it's uh, an attack on the very soul and nature of our democracy about the independence of the Supreme Court and about the values of the Declaration of uh, Independence, which is our kind of, so to speak, equivalent of, uh, of constitution. So once a government using the tools of democracy in order to destroy it from within and ends up uh, acting in a a blatantly illegitimate manner, it is not just the right of citizens, it's the, in my judgment, obligation of citizens to turn, unfortunately, uh, towards a, a civil uh disobedience non non violent but non violent civil disobedience we might be still two weeks or three weeks from completion of this legislation but once it is completed you know the supreme court will stand in their way i hope that the gatekeepers the head of the secret service the head of the police the chief of the uh, idf they all will stand but if they want or if the government will try to impose this uh, package of laws, there will be no, no way for citizens to resist
0: but through uh, non-violent civil disobedience. What about the military? You're a decorated uh, general. Uh, there are people in the military, very senior people, who are saying, the military should refuse to take orders from what will at that point be, in their view, an illegitimate government because it is fundamentally not a government of a liberal democracy. You well
2: described it. What
0: it's already happened. It uh, surfaced in one of the Air
2: Force squadrons, one of the most important ones, but there are many of them, many in the intelligence, many in the uh, Spatial Force, many other units, already uh, wrote... I, I mean, reservists, not, not active uh, duty service, of course, but reservists who are volunteering for, uh, for uh, full of risk kind of roles, The basic argument is the following. We have a contract with a democratic Israel. We are ready to risk our lives, even if we do not agree with any policy of this government. We are ready to risk our lives once and again. We already buried many of our comrades under these circumstances, but we do not have a contract with a dictatorship. And once there is a de facto dictatorship in Israel, we, we, we do not have a contract with them. We will have to find the right way to resist. So I have no doubt if tomorrow morning or next week a major war will be imposed upon us. They all will be there at the front line, risking their lives once again, unlike many of the sons and daughters of the members of this uh, this uh, government. But uh, uh, in the meantime, between wars, they intend to fight against this uh,
0: tendency to turn Israel into dictatorship. Stay with us. When we come back, I will ask our two distinguished guests what, if anything, the outside world can do about all this when we come back. And we are back with Israel's former prime minister, Ehud Barak, and the country's former foreign minister, Zippy Livni. Zippy Livni, what, what is the likely economic impact of, of this? Because I, I do hear people saying, well, Israeli uh, the economy depends on the rule of law and things like that. But I've also heard people skeptical saying, "Look, you know, you've had you've had governments that have uh, played around with uh, that, that, where there's been democratic backsliding. Um, you know, whether it's in Poland or in Hungary, uh, some say in India, but the economy has continued to to power along. Do you think there's a real possibility that Israel's startup nation?" Uh, luster gets diminished by all this? Israel is a startup nation and
1: I, I want to share some uh, optimistic feelings because what you see now is that people are fighting for Israel's democracy. They will not let Israel to turn into a combination of theocracy or autocracy and uh, this is why you see all these people in the streets. Uh, people are fighting and this is the good news because it's kind of a camp People liberal, dem, Democrats w- within Israel, uh, were, were in, in a way uh, were not uh, activists until now, and what you see now is a creation of a new company in Israel that is fighting for Israel's democracy, and this is good news. And I think uh, I know that it took uh, Netanyahu and his government by surprise. They look at the, the opposition and they say, "Okay, they are weak." Uh, you know, they are too weak. They are not going to fight for it. We can do whatever we want. And, and they discover that they can't. What they are trying to do is to take the Jewishness of the state from a religious perspective, uh, perspective uh, to cover uh, the nature and the values of Israel and democracy. And, and people are objecting. So I think that uh, to speak about the future like this is a done deal, I'm not willing to do so. We are fighting now. There is hope. It took the government by surprise and I hope that they will understand that they cannot move forward like this because the prices, not only the political prices that they are paying now, but the prices for the state of Israel are unacceptable.
0: Ehud Barak, isn't this what what Zippy Livni was describing, isn't this tension going to get worse uh, between the ultra-Orthodox element of Israeli politics and its liberal democracy? Because if you look at the demographic trends, the, but the part of the population that is growing is the ultra-Orthodox. It is the Haredi. And they don't seem that committed to liberal democracy. Uh, am I right? And if that's true, is, isn't that a worrying prospect going forward since they're the ones demographically growing?
2: I think uh, that in a way part of it is true. They are growing in numbers, but it's, nothing is uh, kind of uh, predetermined Many of them are coming to age, and especially now with the smartphone, with the openness uh, of society, they find themselves having to uh, trying to reach better life, to participate in the labor force, and to become more kind of uh, more, more kind of open-minded about uh, democracy. So, uh, leave aside for a moment the long-term uh, 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 tendencies, and uh, we are focused on fighting if. Democracy will win, as myself and Zippy believe and and uh, act for. Uh, there will be enough time to deal. The, the ultra Orthodox are, are, are Jews, they are our uh, uh, brothers, and there are many things to be done in, in regard to taking politics out of, uh, taking religion out of Israeli politics, but that's for the future. First of all, we have to make sure that this package of laws that turn Israel into a dictatorship, not Russia or or Turkey, but something like Hungary or Mm -hmm. or, or Poland with much worse uh, neighborhood uh, kind of uh, situation. And we have to stop it, and we will.
0: Uh, Zipi Livni, you're a foreign minister. Um, Does America have a special role to play here? Um, Do American Jews have a special role to play? Talk about that. Oh yeah, oh
1: yeah. Uh, you know, <clears throat> every Israeli citizen understands the importance of the relations between Israel and the U.S. Uh, and as you know, every Israeli leader who comes to the U.S. starts his speeches by saying that we share the same values. And uh, in order to do so and to keep these ties, and this is a strategic relations for Israel, uh, we need to keep these values. I mean, we need to keep these values for ourselves. And what I'm saying is, don't give up Israel. Work with us, fight with us. Keep Israel as it was established. As it, uh, when Israel was born, it was uh, not only accepted, but accepted by all the parties in Israel, that Israel will be a democracy. So let's keep it uh, like that. And therefore, uh, the messages coming from our friends, uh, either Jews or the American administrations, are very important. It's very influential.
0: Zippy Livni, Ehud Barak, thank you so much. These are very important times for your country, and we will be watching carefully. Thank you. Thank you. Next on GPS, U.S.-China relations. They're at an all-time low. I will ask Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, how to get out of this dangerous predicament. It was a one-two punch from China's President Xi and his new foreign minister aimed squarely at the United States. On Monday, Xi accused Western countries led by the United States of containing and suppressing China. He said those actions had severely challenged Beijing. And he called on the country to unite as one to fight back. It was a rare case of China's top leader calling out the United States directly. The next day, Xi's top diplomat warned that conflict and confrontation will be the result if Washington doesn't change its tactics. It's safe to say we are in a very dangerous moment in U.S.-China relations. Kevin Rudd is here to help us understand. He's a former prime minister of Australia who has led the Asia Society for two years, but is about to become Australia's ambassador to the U.S. He is the author of a terrific book, The Avoidable War. Kevin, welcome.
3: Good to be with you on the program, Fareed.
0: So when you hear Xi Jinping say what he did and his foreign minister say what he he did, uh, this is a big change for the Chinese, who have tended to not not refer to the United States by name, specifically accuse it in the way they did. What's going on?
3: I must admit, as someone who's looked at this for the last 40 years, I was surprised. Um, It's probably not since the 90s since I've seen a Chinese paramount leader attack the United States by name. They usually have a, an expression which says such and such a country certain or certain nations, countries. Certain yeah. yeah. Um, and that uh, diplomacy was pushed to one side. And then, of course, the foreign minister went one step further by saying if the United States continues its current posture, in particular on Taiwan, inevitably this will result in conflict. I've never heard that from a Chinese foreign minister before. So I think two things are at play here. I think uh, both uh, Xi Jinping and his team are under considerable domestic economic pressure at present from a very slow economy. And this has been an opportunity for Xi Jinping to say, we know you're going through a hard time domestically, growth's been down, unemployment's been up, prices are a problem in certain areas, but the United States and its allies have been making life impossible for us by the pressure they've brought to bear on us domestically. So I think that's one of the rationales. But, you know, when a Chinese president says something as definitive as this, it also has its own intrinsic foreign security policy significance. And I do believe it further accelerates China's preparedness militarily uh, for a future action over Taiwan, if and when Xi Jinping so chooses. So how did we get here? If, one
0: were to, if if Rip Van Winkle were to have gone to sleep when Obama was having that meeting in sunny lands mm. with Xi Jinping and they take their jackets off mm. and they walk together, it seemed like, yes, a complicated relationship. Some of the stuff they were talking about was China's economic espionage mm. and U.S. support for Taiwan, but manageable. And from there, we're now at what seems like the beginning of a new Cold War. What happened?
3: I think two or three things, Fareed. Um, The first is the balance of power between these two countries has really changed again over the last 10 years. China was becoming more powerful, but the acceleration of the gap, um, or should I say the narrowing of the gap uh, between China and the US in military capabilities, but also in aggregate economic size has actually caused China to conclude Um, it has an ability now to project its own interests and values in a way in which it didn't see as possible before. The second big change driver, I think, is Xi Jinping himself. In the dynamic of Xi's leadership is a change driver in itself. Ideologically, he's a Marxist-Leninist. He's a much more uh, dedicated uh, advocate of an assertive foreign and security policy. And you see him pushing the trajectory and accelerating the velocity of China's shall we say, moment in the global sun. And then third,
0: the United States has pushed back. That was, I wanted to ask you about that, because the other big shift that took place since then was the election of Donald Trump mm. uh, and a much, much uh, tougher uh, foreign policy, first economically then. Um, what do you think happened? You Watching it from the outside, as it were, as an Australian, what strikes you about why and how did America change?
3: Well, if you look at uh, late-term Obama, there were already some changes. Remember, President Obama was uh, responsible for the pivot to Asia. Um, Remember, President Obama initiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, if you like, was a way of bringing the free economies of Asia together uh, under American leadership, dealing with the emerging economic monolith, which was China. But you're right, things did radically change under Donald Trump. Um, The reasons for it, I think, driven essentially in the first instance by the view of the Trump administration on trade, that this was a net loser for the United States, that jobs had been sacrificed, and they galvanized a series of reservations already alive in the American debate, uh, which caused um, the launching of um, the trade war of 2018-19. Then, of course, the turbocharging influence of covid and the Wuhan origins and where that took the relationship. So that uh, then you had the formal proclamation of a new doctrine of strategic competition by the then National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster. So this was a rapid transition during Trump, but the beginnings of it lay in late Obama.
0: So next on GPS, questions swirl about whether China might supply arms to Russia for its war in Ukraine. If that happened, it would change the course of the war, and perhaps of world order. I will ask Kevin Rudd whether he thinks it will happen when we come back. And we are back here on GPS talking about relations between Beijing and Washington with Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, soon to become Canberra's ambassador to Washington. So Kevin, help us understand china's calculation with regard to ukraine does it help china to have russia in this war i mean it feels like it's a it's a the war is not going particularly well for russia but how does china view this war
3: you know often looking from the outside we think what's in this for china Um, china's at risk of shredding uh, its international reputation by being too close uh, to um, Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine, not sufficiently independent, etc. If you look at this uh, relationship, however, uh, through the Beijing lens or through the Xi Jinping lens, it's really important to see this. From his strategic view, having Russia on side with China for the long term is of fundamental importance. For most of their 400 year history, as you know, as a student of this, it's been a heavily armed border. You no longer have to do that. There's no longer 18 Soviet divisions on the other side of the, the border. China can focus all of its military activity and resources and planning to the maritime theater, its principal future adversary, the United States. I think the other thing in Xi Jinping's calculus is the Russians from time to time will provide rolling strategic distractions for the United States in other theaters. Syria some time ago, now of course in Ukraine. Again, uh, causing the United States to be f- focusing in multiple directions at once, China has one direction to focus on.
0: And, and wouldn't you add, I mean, it also gives China, Russia, as a kind of junior partner, some would say a vassal state, that is, we forget, the, one of the world's largest producers of energy, oil, coal, natural uh-huh. gas, and China needs that desperately.
3: Absolutely, it provides secure access, reliable access and... Cheap prices. ...discounted (laughs) prices, uh, free steak knives thrown in, uh, in order to have access to Russia's oil, gas, but also agricultural commodities, um, where they are available and applicable. So you put that mix together. From Xi's perspective, I don't want to do anything, he would say in his own mind, to jeopardise that. Furthermore, the last thing he could ever see from his own interest point of view, would be to sit back and see Putin fail fundamentally, uh, let alone a Putin collapse in Russia itself. So will China supply arms to Russia? There's the $6,000 question. I've read carefully what the United States administration have said now through multiple officials, um, Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, et cetera, about, and the director of the CIA, Uh, about um, real intelligence on these matters. Uh, If you read carefully the text, decisions have not yet been taken. What's my gut? Um, In terms of where China is at present, unless they were were concluding internally that there was a danger of Putin actually losing and actually coming under massive pressure in terms of his own position back home, I do not see that it is in China's interest now to cross that line. Um, either directly through providing uh, military material directly to the Russians or cleverly through third parties, as is often been suggested.
0: You know, you, at the end of your book, which is really uh, terrific, um, you talk about the need for managed strategic competition between the United States and China. Um, it seems we're far from that right now. Mm. We seem to be going into a world where China is going to quadruple its nuclear arsenal, where we, we will essentially be in a new nuclear age, which could be quite unstable with very little, by the way, of arms control talks and treaties. What would you advise Washington to do to, to bring things back on track?
3: If we were to have, I think, Chancellor Schultz here or President Macron, or we were to have uh, President Yoon in Korea or Prime Minister Kishida in Japan, um, I think the general view would be to the superpowers, uh, both these superpowers, are finding a mechanism to restabilize the relationship, new strategic guardrails to reduce the risk of crisis, conflict, and war by accident. And if they're looking for a precedent, and you're a student of international relations history, remember after the near death experience of the Cuban Missile Crisis? The Soviets and the United States, for the subsequent 30 years, never ever got close to the abyss again. They developed a series of common protocols including the Helsinki Accords in 1975. So I think there is a view across many countries that taking this temperature down is in the world's interest, it's in allies' interests, and it's also in the interest of China's closest friends and partners as well.
0: Is it in order to try to help move things along those those lines that you've decided to take this new job? You are a former prime minister, you have a Terrific job! You could travel the world. Why, why? Is that why
3: you're doing this? No, it's the climate in Washington. I just, <laughs> I just love the sunshine. The, um, the, uh, no, my, my prime minister, who um, has been a friend and colleague for years in Australian politics, asked me, and so did the foreign minister. But I think their interest, like mine, and their anxiety, like mine, is this is be starting to become dangerous. And um, Australia is uh, one of America's oldest treaty allies. Uh, We've been in the trenches with the United States in, uh, I think, all of America's major wars in the 20th century and into the 21st century, even some of the crazy ones. (laughs) And so um, working closely with the administration and the guidance of the government in Canberra is about dealing with the granularity of deterrence, dealing with the granularity of... Um, mechanisms to reduce the risk of crisis, conflict, and war by accident, as well as uh, the roles and responsibility of allies. Um, So uh, of course, as an ambassador, I'm promoting the Australian national interests in business and security and defense and all that. And I'll be doing that happily as well. But I think we're living in dangerous times, my friend, uh, really dangerous times. And I think it's time for all hands to the pump.
0: Well, I'm delighted to have you on Kevin. I'm also delighted because my guess is that d- this being your exit interview from now on you'll be you'll be speaking in diplomatic banalities and I will not get something this uh, interesting <laughs> out of you. Thank you. Next on GPS, the power of AI is certain to supercharge big tech to the detriment of at least one other vital industry. Ours. I'll explain when we come back. And now for the last look. Ever since the dawn of the internet, there's been a struggle between technology companies and media companies. While big tech platforms provide users with easy access to journalism, news organizations complain that despite getting more traffic, they receive very little by way of revenue from those clicks. It's a war that the news industry has mostly lost, resulting in the free fall of thousands of newspapers, magazines, and websites over the last three decades. Well, the struggle is revving up again. Canada's Senate is considering a bill that would make big tech sites like Facebook and Google finally pay publishers for displaying news content online. In response, Google removed links to news articles from its search engine for up to 4% of the country's population. The company has framed this move as a way to temporarily test the impact of the so-called Online News Act. But Ottawa sees things differently and has now summoned the tech giant's executives to testify before Parliament. Several countries, including the United States, have similar laws under consideration right now, and Australia actually passed one in 2021. But a game-changer is on the horizon. Generative AI may soon disrupt how we consume and search for content on the internet, and new laws may not solve for the next set of challenges. A few months ago, I told you about OpenAI's new chatbot, ChatGPT. It can hold conversations and convincingly mimic human writing. It had and frankly still has some major flaws when it comes to accuracy, but AI has the power to bring superpowers to search engines, vastly improving their ability to respond to questions from you and me. This is why Microsoft has been keen to incorporate this technology into its previously marginal search engine Bing. This version of Bing responds to user queries by delivering conversational answers to questions, drawing its responses from synthesizing and paraphrasing other online media. It may list footnotes at the end of its response, but its answers are often so self-contained and complete that there's very little incentive for users to continue on to the source of the information. If you get a well-synthesized answer to your question, why would you bother to click on the footnotes at the end of the answer to see the two or three sources on which that synthesis is based? As The Economist recently pointed out, new AI chatbots can even reach behind paywalls. In today's search engine landscape, a user trying to find the New York Times' recipe for macaroni and cheese will be stopped by a demand for payment and subscription. But Ask Bing's AI... And it serves up a paraphrased version of the whole recipe, complete with a licking lips emoji. Chat GPT-enabled Bing isn't available to the public yet, and Microsoft has some serious work cut out for itself before an official launch can happen. The program still struggles with accuracy, and it has been known to act, well, a bit unhinged. But make no mistake, AI chatbots are coming. Google announced plans to enhance its search feature with its own AI-powered chatbot called BARD. And China's tech company Baidu says it will release Ernie Bot after further internal testing. Publishers could be left scrambling. For years, journalists, including here at CNN, have labored over search engine optimization in order to draw eyeballs to their content and therefore to their advertisers. Other news organizations have opted to bring in users by contorting their editorial standards, by writing clickbait to appeal to the algorithm, bending in every which way with the hopes of enticing someone away from the endless scrolling. No one can agree on just how much money the tech industry has already siphoned from journalism in the past two decades, but chatbots will likely be devastating to its click-driven economy. New laws could help. In just over a year, Australia has gotten Google and Facebook to pay media companies their more than $140 million for using their news content. The Guardian alone has added 50 journalists to its newsroom down under. It's always good to remember that AI chatbots don't actually know anything. They learn it from existing knowledge created by human beings, in this case journalists. If those human beings didn't exist, the chatbots would have nothing to say. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.